0: We are doing a series relating dating and mating this semester. Tonight we are going to talk about dating. Now, um, I guess the place to start is, it's a weird topic for me to talk about, honestly, because, um, gosh, I don't even know, does anybody date anymore? And if so, how do you know what to do on a date? It's a, it's a weird thing. About uh, it was a few years ago now, probably seven or eight years ago, a guy named Arthur Levine, Uh, released a study, and he basically declared, uh, he and his research associates, that dating, traditional dating, as a campus pastime was dead. And yet, in some ways, it's not totally true, because I know people in this room that have dated and that ask people out on dates and go on dates. But in a lot of ways, what he said has replaced that are people kind of hanging out uh, in packs, And, you know, whether or not that involves friends with benefits or not, who knows, but it's, but sometimes it does, sometimes it depends on your pack, right? It depends on your cluster and what kind of goes in your group, right? But, uh, but the idea, here's the, the thing, and this is why I kind of started out talking about the dilemma of dating is, I guess, where we need to start with tonight. It used to be that there really were very strict social norms that guided you in these sorts of things, And I'm not going to argue that those were always great because some of them were very oppressive and repressive and hurtful and not in line with what the Bible would say about how we're to treat human beings. But at least there was some guidance. In our day and age, who knows what you're supposed to do? If a guy asks a girl out on a date, is he supposed to pay? Is he supposed to open the door? Now, let me just tell you guys, if you get that wrong, there may not be a second date. But you also aren't allowed to ask. You might ask your friends, but, you know, that's like asking broke people for money advice. <laughs> you know, it, there, was a, there was a study years ago done on what is the number one source uh, of information for, for junior high girls on, for what they should do on a date. Now, why junior high girls are on dates, I don't know. I guess you call them middle school now anyway. But the, uh, the number one source that middle school girls got for what they thought they should do on a date, number one answer, other middle school girls. Number two answer, the media, right? So it's actually the media directly and the media once removed. is Honestly, so that's not at all encouraging, especially if you have kids like I do. Um, so, you know, there's this whole sense of like, who, how do you know what to do? The dilemma of dating. So if dating is dead, Arthur Levine says, it's because um, people don't know what to do. But even more importantly, you guys have come, in a, come of age in a generation where if your parents weren't divorced, probably your best friends were. And that has had a devastating effect on the way people think about relationships. When I sit down and talk to people, I can't assume that they want to date and they just got to have some ideas about how to do it or encouragement or whatnot. No, people often, for various reasons, sometimes people would say that they don't want to date because they're not interested in romantic entanglements at all. Why would I ever want to get married? It's an institution that's failed. It's an institution that hurts people. Um, There's all kinds of reasons why people are just kind of confused about this topic. And you may be thinking, even tonight, well, okay, this is mildly interesting, but it's not really relevant to me because I'm not interested in dating. I'm not interested in sort of anything that's going to distract me from my plan of my life and what I want it to be. I'm not interested in anything that might involve me getting hurt. Uh, I'm not interested, you might say, in something where I might possibly lose a friend Because one of the other factors that is affecting us in our day and age is there's been a real shift in our society as we've went from more of a modern society to a postmodern society in the kinds of relationships and how they're viewed. See, in a traditional culture, the relationship that defines you and gives you your sense of meaning and even sort of uh, a sense of security by which you can go out and face the world, in the traditional society, it really is your family. And you see this often in the Bible, like your family and who you know is really important, right? Um, Paul says this, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, uh, that I am from the tribe of Benjamin. That's my family. Jesus, right, had, you know, his parents had to go back to Bethlehem, the city of David, because of his family connections for them to be counted in the census, family. Uh, but in the modern society, uh, what really mattered was your lovers. And I I won't even say your spouse because particularly, you know, particularly in the 60s and the 70s, you know, love meant whatever sort of your heart wanted at the moment. And whether that was your spouse or not um, didn't matter so much as long as you pursued true love and romantic feelings wherever they led you. But the most important relationship and the relationship that you counted on for meaning and self-definition and self-worth was a, a love relationship. But in your day and age, what's kind of come, uh, this wave that's come across, particularly after the, the rise of no fault divorce and the devastating effects it's had on us culturally, is that people no longer think that love relationships last. Because almost everybody that you know that said, I love you, has given up on it at some point when it got really difficult. And sometimes, you know, rightly, sometimes, you know, wrongly, okay? I'm not making judgments about that right now, only to say that love is not seen as the security that it used to be. Now, the group, the people that you think will be there for you year after year through thick and thin are your friends, and so what happens, you ha- I have this conversation regularly with people. They're of the opposite sex, and they're friends. And maybe one of the people is interested in it going to the next level, whatever that means. Um, and you know, it's fascinating how carefully people parse all those things. You know, We're going out, we're dating, we're Facebook official. And there's all this carefully you know, nuanced definitions. And you better know all of those, too, because if you call something the wrong thing, you might get in trouble. But anyway, the, 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 the dilemma is... This person is really my best friend, and I don't want to risk losing that for something, you know, as fleeting as a love affair. Friends are seen as even more stable, right? And yet, a lot of people begin to suspect that if they don't marry this person, they won't be your friend forever. If you don't know that in college, I will tell you that. If you think that there's somebody of the opposite sex who's your best friend, it's very unlikely that they're going to remain your best friend for very long. Seriously. There's not many people who are married are going to let their spouse have a best friend of the opposite sex. So if you don't get married and the other person does, whatever. Um, But in a lot of ways, we kind of don't want to face that reality, and so we just sort of live in this limbo and sort of in this kind of tension that further contributes to the dilemma of Dating. So what do do we do? What do we do? I I like this quote, um, you know, from uh, Levine. He says, again and again, students have told us that they've never seen a successful adult romantic relationship. That's pretty huge. Never seen. Well, do we want to (laughs) date? I don't know. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this a little bit and see what the Bible has to say about all this kind of stuff. Lord, we do thank you that in spite of the mess that our world is in, in spite of the mess that we ourselves are, that you are still God, you are still on the throne, and we pray that you would help us even tonight as we consider this topic of dating, that you would give us wisdom, you would give us humility to consider even ideas that might be new and that we could judge all of them by the truth of your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question might arise, why are you even talking about dating? Is dating even biblical? And the question uh, deserves an answer. And here's the answer. No, dating is not biblical. It's not biblical. Nobody dates in the Bible. Okay? That being said, does that really matter? And the answer is, well, yes and no. Um, Dating is not biblical. You're not going to look in the Bible and find verses that address dating couples directly as dating couples. As a matter of fact, there are several categories of people or ways you should think about yourself as a relationship. You could be in a relationship of marriage with somebody. You could be engaged. Other than that, you're either physically related to somebody or if you're both Christians, you're brother and sister in the Lord. Or maybe there's a little references at times to people who are your fathers in the faith and your mothers in the faith, all right? So if you're not married or engaged, the Bible says that you're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then there's this sort of in-between thing that we do culturally that's not specifically addressed in the Bible. What does that mean? Does that mean that you can't date? And the answer is no. And this is a really important uh, point to make because there are a lot of people that believe that unless the Bible says you can do it, you're not free to do it. But that actually isn't true. Um, what the what the Bible says is that Christian freedom is a very important thing. As a matter of fact, in um, the second uh, second chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he talks about how there were some people who came and tried to spy out and to get rid of the freedom that those believers had in Christ. And he said that he had to oppose them for the sake of the gospel. Uh, There's also a place in the, the letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, and in the second chapter of Colossians, though this is one of the great ironies. You know, when you buy a Bible, and they sometimes will have like a little heading for a particular chapter, Um, or even a little in-between chapter, the New International Version does this a lot, and most translations do. The NIV um, heading for this little section in Colossians is rules for holy living. Uh, And then you read in the section, and Paul says, um, why do you submit to these rules? Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. These things are Um, destined to perish with use. Um, They lack any value for restraining sensual indulgence because they're basically man-made rules. They're not God's rules. The Bible takes a very dim view and God takes a very dim view of you calling something a sin that the Bible doesn't call a sin. And the reason for that is because God made his creation, we read in Genesis, and said, this is good. And people are always trying to restrict it in the name of spirituality, to tell people that the more miserable you are and the more things you don't uh, enjoy, then the more spiritual you are. A lot of people have this idea, but Colossians 2 says just the opposite. Making up rules that God doesn't make up actually is a really bad thing to do because you are usurping the place of God himself. There is only one God who has created and told us, this is how I made you to live. And there's nobody who has the right to usurp his place and to start making up rules. So, if the Bible doesn't call dating a sin, then we better not call it a sin. Okay? That being said, the Bible has lots to say about how we relate to one another. And all of that stuff needs to be brought to bear on this relationship as well. So dating is not biblical. People in the Bible didn't date. Um, And yet that doesn't mean that we can't date. Nonetheless, the principles that we've been talking about this semester still apply to this relationship. Now, there have been some, and I I don't know how popular this is right now. Uh, Maybe about five years ago, there was a really big movement within Christian circles, particularly um, homeschool and Christian school circles, to kiss dating goodbye and to be involved in courtship. Right? Maybe some of you have been at youth groups, or maybe even your family has... Uh, adopted this practice now what is what is courtship? A lot of people have argued that biblically dating is is bad it 's not there, but courtship is the biblical way and i 'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about what 's wrong with Christian books on dating next week because I really need an entire week to talk about that seriously in all honestly, um, but one of the things you know it 's interesting, I did have this guy call me once who wanted to come uh, have me bring my students not that you are my students and you do what I say, but that's, that's always the funny thing when people call up and they're like, why don't you make all your students come? I'm like, have you worked with college students? Like, I can't, I can't make them do anything. But um, no, he, he asked if we could, you know, promote his conference. He'd written a book called Choosing God's Best. And I just sort of was a little nauseated even the title of that book. But I decided to kind of, you know, be gracious and ask him, well, how do you know what God's best is anyway? And he told me kind of what he thought, and I responded with a snarky little comment. And maybe I'll tell you that story next week. But um, but it's interesting because this book basically says that dating, like you know, does this, you know, you know, creates unwed pregnancy and venereal disease. All these sorts of things are all because of dating. And I'm like, really? I thought that was sin. Um, but he goes on, and then what's so fascinating about the, this approach is he says, but it can all be you know taken care of if we just pursued courtship what is courtship? Courtship is basically, I guess, at the bare minimum, involving your parents and being intentional. Now, some of you know your parents and you think that's the worst idea I've ever heard of. Um, But the courtship people, you know, they're not idiots. And I think they've tried to make provision. They understand that some people's parents probably wouldn't be helpful to, to be involved. And so maybe you need to look for people that could function that way. Maybe a pastor, youth group leader, older, people, especially if your family is not Christian, you might be good to have, because I've known people that have been pressured by their parents to date people that the Bible would say they shouldn't be dating, right? And sometimes that happens, uh, that, those kinds of situations. So, But it's the idea that of involving other people, particularly older people that might have some wisdom, so it's not just you to, you know, um, love-struck people making all these kinds of decisions. And I think there's some wisdom to that, honestly. And it also means being somewhat intentional in what you're doing. Now, the degree of the intentionality might be a little frightening at times because it's the idea that before you start kind of going together and doing things together, you basically have already decided that you're heading towards marriage. And I'm going to say something about that in a minute. But here's the thing I want you to see. Courtship isn't in the Bible either. If you really want to find a biblical model, I guess you could opt for arranged marriages. And, you know, what's interesting is for people in our day and age, they think, like, that's the craziest thing I ever heard of. All I will say, and I won't say that they were right about this, but the Puritans used to say that they married to fall in love. And the fact that that seems so crazy to us, um, I don't know, it may say something about them, but it also may say something about us. And sometimes it is helpful to, to sort of see things through the eyes of people who aren't shaped by the same cultural forces you are to say, well, maybe there is some wisdom to that. Because the idea that you just fall into love, I think, is, a, is not a very biblical notion at all. All right. So what are we going to say ab- about this? Well, the funny thing about that guy's book where he's advocating courtship as the biblical model, he could only find one place in the Bible where he thought he found courtship advocated. Do you know where it was? It was in the book of Ruth, because Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, encourages her to lay at Boaz's feet, which is actually a rather sexually provocative thing to do. And I thought, I don't think he really understands this passage, or he wouldn't be encouraging teen daughters to to do this. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to look to that passage when my daughter gets old enough to want to date. I'll just tell you that. So, um, But we'll, t- we'll talk more about, about that and basically that whole approach, which um, Dan Allender, I think, rightly calls a simpleton approach to the Christian life, which is basically looking for little rules to tell you exactly what to do so you don't have to wrestle with anything and with decisions and with principles. But we want to talk about some of the principles that... Um, apply to dating. Because while we have freedom to date, we need to wrestle with, is there a distinctively Christian way to date? And I hope that there is. Because Christianity should never just be a little add-on to your life. If Christianity doesn't affect how you relate to other people, then you don't know much about Christianity. One of the Puritans had a great way of putting this. He said, I would think very little of the Christianity of a man whose dog was not the better for it. Say that again. I would think very little of a man's Christianity whose dog was not the better of it. Does does your Christianity affect how you treat your pets? Does it affect how you study? Does it affect how you dream and what you long for and what you're majoring in? It should affect all those things. It should certainly affect dating. So what are we going to talk about? Well, we can't go over everything, but think about this. Everything that we've talked about this semester applies to this. Forgiveness, idolatry, the idea that you were made for relationship with God and with others. All of those things come to bear on this topic but there are some particular things that we can say about dating as well. How about the purpose of dating? What do you think the purpose of dating is? I think that a lot of people go wrong at just this point, And a lot of other problems come from this. The Bible, again, doesn't address dating in particular. A lot of people assume that the purpose of dating is to find a spouse. I am hesitant to say that. I would rather back up and say, well, what's the purpose of of mankind? Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it, what is the chief end of man? What are we here for? Right? I know everybody's snickering because we were talking about making a little t-shirt that says, ask me about my chief end. How many would buy that shirt? I don't know. Well, anyway, not enough. I I think we voted it down at a a little meeting we had earlier. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, basically um, there was a big conference of some of the brightest theological minds in England, and a few Scots got invited as well back in the 1600s. And they um, sat down and wrestled with, what does the Bible teach about things, right? And one of the things they did is they came up with a catechism. A catechism is something that you use for your children. In their case, it was written really for junior high age children, how to teach them about what the Bible says about different topics. And the very first question was, What is the chief end of man? Or what is the goal of man? What is the purpose? Why are we here? And the answer, which is derived in a large part from the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As Ecclesiastes puts it at the very end of the book, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And the divines, which is what we call these guys that gathered together to write the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they understood that fear God is not be afraid of him. It means reverence him and connect the dots. He can, he's connected to everything. He's never to be out of your thoughts when you think about any subject. His love should be in your heart when you process every subject and every experience. That's the big idea of what it means to fear God. And keep his commandments. It it doesn't just mean to be afraid of him. It means to enjoy him. And to glorify him. To reverence him. Okay? And that is your purpose. I remember when I first visited Covenant Theological Seminary, I was blown away by this. I went to visit the seminary. I had no intention of going there up in St. Louis. I really was de- had decided that I wanted to go to a different place. But somebody told me, you should go visit there because you'll get a financial aid offering. You can play it off against the seminary. And I was like, okay, if that's what I'm supposed to do. I didn't know anything. I didn't have anybody telling me. So I went up there and I sat in on a class. Now, one of the things we're going to do on our mission trip, actually, is sit in on some classes at Covenant Seminary. I sat in on a class called sex ethics. And I remember Dr. David Jones, dear, dear man, um, getting up there and talking about the purpose of sex. And he connected it to the sunum bonum, the highest good, right? Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if you don't start with your thinking about sex there, you will go astray in how you think about it. And I thought, this is unbelievable. Like connecting the dots between theology and sexuality, life and theology and all this stuff. And I was hooked. I went to Covenant Theological Seminary. And it was a great place. And I took that class on sex ethics when it was offered. And it was a great, great class. What I'm saying is the highest purpose, the point of your life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if dating is not part of how you do that, then you shouldn't be doing it. Which means the purpose of dating is not for you to glorify yourself and feel good about yourself because people ask you out and you can wrap them around your little finger and feel good about yourself. The purpose of dating is not for you to find things to do with your boredom. The purpose of dating is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's a legitimate question to ask. If you really want to freak a boy out, girls, when he asks you out on a date, say, well, what's your intention? And if he doesn't say to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then you say, sorry, buddy, hit the road. No, um, that would be kind of unfair, unless they were at REF tonight and they know the right answer. <laughs> anyway, you know, I, I, I'm, in all seriousness, that needs to be what you're thinking about. There is another biblical principle, a sort of a way of living this out um, that's given to Abraham that also, I think, governs the way we think about relationships. Abraham has said that he is going to be blessed so that he can be a blessing. Uh, Jesus echoes this thing when he says, to whom much is given, much is expected. You have been blessed to be a blessing. And you should think about that as well when you're thinking about dating. Which, from my my perspective, means that the purpose of dating is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to be blessed, and to be a blessing. And I think that if you try to go farther and say that the purpose of dating is to marry or to find a spouse, now, the Bible does say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It says that in the Proverbs. And whenever the Bible calls something good, it means you should pursue it. So hear that. But then also here, that the only legitimate purpose of dating is not just to find a spouse. The reason that's so important is because if you don't think that, then basically every relationship you have with a brother or sister in Christ, you have to think about it in terms of the grid. Is it leading me towards finding a spouse? And if I actually intentionally go out with somebody and spend time with them, it's not so that I can be blessed and be a blessing, it's so that I can decide if they should be somebody that I would want to marry. And what this ends up doing is any relationship that doesn't end up in marriage, you have to conclude it was a failure. And I think that's tragic, right? I also think it takes a lot of the pressure off because so many people get in this weird catch-22 where it's like, well, I'm kind of interested in this guy. I know him a little bit. I don't really know him that well. Um, And he asks you out on a date and you're like, well, I don't know if I should go out with him because I'm not sure if I would want to marry him. It's like, how could you possibly know that yet? But if you think the point of dating is to get married, then you shouldn't date unless you think this person is at least a possibility. And yet you end up ruling out a lot of people for the wrong reasons. Tim Keller says that one of the great tragedies uh, for most of us is whenever we walk into a room, we immediately eliminate 90% of the people in the room as potential people we'd ever want to date because of what they look like. And we end up missing out on a lot of really potentially great friendships that we could have and ways that we could learn about God and what he's like. Do you understand that there's not a person in this room that fully gets the grace of the gospel? But by hearing your story and knowing how God has worked in you, I get to hear a little bit more about how good he is and about how merciful he is and about how peculiar he is because at times he really is. In other words, this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, that all the various members of the body cannot look at each other and say, I don't need you, you don't need me. No, we need each other. And so what ends up happening in a community like this is you basically say, well, I don't need anybody that I wouldn't ever want to date, and I don't ever want to date anybody that I wouldn't want to marry, and pretty soon you just hang out with just a couple people, and that's weird and awkward because you really would like to date them, but you're too chicken to tell them, (laughs) right? Because then you think they might not want to hang out with you anymore, right? That's not what we want Christian community to be about. And I think that if if you understand the purpose is to be blessed and be a blessing, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It takes some of that pressure off. Now, the way that you might glorify God and enjoy him forever might evolve somewhat. As you get to know this person, you might decide, this really does seem like a relationship that I would want to pursue and even move towards marriage. And you work that out and you talk about it. And we'll talk more about marriage later. But uh, I think this idea about the purpose is really important. Um, now, the, the, only, the other thing I wanted to say, though, to throw into this hopper as we think about dating is that doesn't mean if the purpose of dating is not just to get married, neither is it just to play around with people's hearts. Um, there is a place where Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. In the context there, Jesus says, don't be swearing oaths. And a lot of people have sort of taken this like the Jehovah Witness and be like, okay, you can't ever swear an oath in a court of law. It's not really Jesus' point. What he's saying is you should be the kind of person whose integrity is such that you don't need to swear oaths so that people will trust you. They should trust you anyway. If your yes is yes and your no is no, you shouldn't need to swear oaths. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying is there should be such an integrity about you, literally in the sense of oneness and you're kind of together and not a split person, but you're an integrated person such that your words and your actions are saying the same thing. In other words, what you say with your words is what you need to say with your time and your actions. And this is an important principle for dating as well, because sometimes those things don't go together. Sometimes you're saying, well, we're just friends, but you're not acting like it, right? And I don't just mean like, you know, hooking up. I mean like you're feeling like this person needs to be there for me all the time like a husband would. And if he's not, you know, but yet at the same time, you've kind of defined it with your words, both of you as we're just friends. But you're not treating each other. There's not expectations like you're just friends. When Wendy and I first started dating, we had to wrestle with this a little bit. I had to wrestle with it more than she did, really. Because I took her out, you know the story, I took her out on a date on a Friday night, and then I took her out again on a Saturday, and both of those were really kind of public things that we, I did in front of like our group which was kind of a big deal because I never dated. Nobody knew me to date anybody. She certainly didn't. And it kind of completely came out of the blue for her. All right, so on that, that was on a Friday, right, on a Saturday morning. And then Saturday night it was, right, that she went out country line dancing Sunday. Oh, yeah, Sunday night she went out country line dancing with some other guy, right? And then I saw her again on Monday, and I think I had heard about it by then. So I was like, we got to talk. So, you know, yeah, I, w- I was really kind of hurt, But I had to sit down and say, you know, like, I don't have any rights over you. Like, the Bible says that the husband's body is not his own. It belongs to the wife. We looked at this last week, right? 1 Corinthians 7. And the wife's body is not her own, but it belongs to the husband. But it doesn't say that about dating couples. So, yeah, I asked you out on a couple dates. Uh, I'm hoping that you'll go out with me again. But I don't have any rights over you. I can't tell you not to go out with somebody. All I can tell you is, I'm not going to go out with somebody. And she said, yeah, that's probably a good idea. If you're pursuing me, you shouldn't also be pursuing somebody else. But she wasn't under any kind of restriction like that. And as much as I would have loved to have her, even in that moment, vow that she wouldn't go out with anybody else, I had no right to ask her for that. Right? Uh, In other words, I needed to say, at this point, I'm pursuing you that's what it is. And I don't want my actions to say something different. As much as I would love uh, to, to, to sort of, you know, make you feel like you owe me, that's not appropriate. That would not be a good application of let your yes be yes and your no be no. And you guys, you know, you need to not be naive about this. So if on one hand, you know, people are, you know, thinking that, gosh, I can't date anybody because I don't know if I would marry this person, okay? I want to come against that. But I also want to come against sort of just aimless hanging out that is actually more than just hanging out, but nobody will say what it is. That's not helpful either. And it's destructive, not only of that relationship, but of Christian community. Because everybody else, it's like awkward and it's like the elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about. Um, One of my life principles, which I would hope you would um, try and see if this works for you, is talk through weirdness. Just talk through weirdness. You guys are adults. Talk through weirdness, right? Be careful about sort of just loose and fast. So you got to understand the older you get, the more serious this stuff gets, whether you're serious or not. It's true. And you might wish it were otherwise. You might be like, well, I'm not serious about anything. I just like to go out on dates and have fun. I, I don't care. The older you get, the more serious it becomes, like it or not. And you have to steward that well. You have to be responsible for that. If you just ask a girl out and you take her out and then you don't call her or anything, like, oh, that's weird and awkward, Right. And, you know, and people, like, here's the thing, people try to communicate by either not talking or, you know, we try everything we can do to communicate without actually talking face to face. And all I'll tell you is there are two interpretations to every event. And that's always working against you. In other words, you take a girl out. I've known guys to do this. Take a girl out and then be like, man, I just I really love this girl. No, oh, I love. They wouldn't say that. I really like this girl. She's really cool. You know, that's what they say. And I would love to ask her out again. I was like, well, did you, did you call her the next day? No, no, no. I don't want to come on too strong and like freak her out. Okay. Well, you know, if you don't call the girl the next day, she might you might be on the same page with her and she might be like, cool. You know, this is just kind of going at a slow pace. Nice. Or she might be like, man, he didn't call me. And you may think you're communicating one thing by not calling, and you may be communicating something else. There really are two interpretations to every event, to you not calling. There's the interpretation, depending on if she feels confident or not, whether she's going to take that as a good sign or a bad sign, right? And so here's the problem. You're trying to communicate, but you're not talking. Don't do that. Talk. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be consistent, but talk about it, right? Um, What else would we say? Honor others and be honest towards them. You don't have ownership over another person. Don't act with people like you're married. Like I've said, you know, we're going to talk about sex. We're going to do it for a whole, a whole week about that. But I will just say this at this point. The Bible says that God created sex as a way for you to say, I'm committed to you. And that's what you need to be saying with it. If you're not trying to say something else with it, it's it's going to have its effects. And we'll talk more about that. It doesn't mean that the effects are forever. You'll never be able to have a satisfying relationship. No, I'm not saying that. There is forgiveness. There is healing. But you need to understand that God has stamped with meaning his creation. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare God's glory. And it's an active word. They're preaching, proclaiming his glory. Everything he's made is stamped with meaning. And when we try and make it say something else, it's fighting back with us. God did not create sex as a way for you to say, I'm important and I matter. He didn't create sex as a way for you to say that people really like me and I can prove it because they like to have sex with me. He didn't create it as a way for you to say, I think you're really hot. He created it to say, I'm committed to you. Therefore, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you need to consider, are you using sexuality? I don't care whether it's holding hands or kissing or what. Are you saying with it what it was intended to say? Right? Right? Now again, I don't want to make rules where the Bible doesn't make rules but this is a principle that sex is made to say something and part of the letting your yes be yes and your no be no is making sure that the level of intimacy is commensurate with the level of commitment. I think often Christian couples feel like we're Christians therefore we should just share everything with each other often before the commitment level really justifies it. And so I want to encourage you to be careful and to guard your heart in that way, as well. Um, last point under this, and then we'll get to, to a little thing about fear. Dating is not a substitute for marriage. Now, this is, I'm preaching to myself here because I was single till what thirty three is when we got married. Yeah, and, and for a lot of ways, like I wasn't dating anybody, but I definitely was looking for other relationships to sort of. Um, give me solace in a way. Like well, I guess what I'm trying to get at here are people that date for years and years and years and years. And they basically are married and everybody knows they're married. They just don't want to, you know, sort of finalize the commitment or uh, make it public. And, and again, we'll talk about that a little more with marriage. But only to say, like the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, and we looked at this again last week, it's better to marry than to burn. And it is true that one of the challenges that you all have that people in Bible times didn't have is that people are getting married later and later. I saw a statistic just today. I was, I was doing some, some looking around about this. You know, the average single person now, I think, man gets married 28 years at 28 and women at 26. That's, you know, in the Bible times, 12, 13, 14, 15, right? So you've got, you know, an extra what, 10, 12, 13 years of being single when you're sexually mature, that's a big deal. That's not something to just say, "Ah, it's no big deal if you just really try hard. No, it's a serious deal, right? Um, But for some people, they're artificially prolonging that even more. In some ways, because they kind of are like using their dating relationship to sort of have marriage without the full commitment. And um, I'll, I'll just say this, dating really is not like trying out marriage. They're really two different relationships. There's something completely different about the commitment that marriage brings. It's not, just, it's, it's not just dating sort of taken to the next level. It really is a different relationship. There's a kind of commitment that undergirds marriage that changes the way you deal with everything, the way you deal with conflict, the way you deal with disappointment on and on, I would say. All right, so finally, let me, let me, uh, let me just say this. I, I really think that the main obstacle to dating in the world and often in the church is fear. Fear. And, I, you know, I, I think there are ways that we deal with fear in the way God deals with fear. And I don't have much time to talk about this, but let me just say this briefly. Men usually deal with their fear by abdicating responsibility. Now, again, you know, anytime you try and say generally, you know, I'm, there's a, a, we could die a death of a thousand qualifications. Um, I I think that there are something to gender roles, but I think often people sort of spell that out way more than the Bible does. And we'll do two weeks on marriage, and one of those will just be about gender roles. Okay, so we're going to talk about that more. But I think in general, men tend to deal with their fear by abdicating responsibility and not wanting to move forward. Or make decisions they retreat into areas where they feel comfortable and confident which is a control issue and often when we deal with fear we try to sort of hold on to something where we feel we can control and I would say that in this situation men need to learn uh, how the gospel can set them free to risk the idea that God loves them not because they're competent but because he loves them should set them free to risk even if they feel like when Wendy and I started dating like I didn't know what I was doing I never felt like I knew what I was doing we used to debate sometimes who had the real power who had the real control in the relationship It was me because I could quit asking her out or she could say no but the fact is both of us felt like we're not really in control of this thing Um, and that's a really frightening thing for a guy I guess it is for a girl, too. But I would say women tend to deal with their fear by manipulating relationships. Men tend to back away and sort of retreat into themselves. Women tend to try to manipulate relationships. Again, it's a control issue, but I think the way women control sometimes is more subtle than men. Uh, one of my pastor friends says that, you know, when it comes to relationships, men have, like, the eight-color eight, box, you know, eight color box of Crayola crayons, and women have, like, the full 64-color you know, box. Um, I think there's something to that, too. I think that there's um, more nuanced kinds of things that women seem to be able to do, uh, which can be good. But when you start to use it um, to control, it can be powerful. And I would say that often women need to learn how uh, how to trust and need the gospel to help them. Um, now, that, that's how we deal with it, through control. But what does God do with our fear? And I just want to close with this passage. It's in 1 John chapter 4. And I love this. I, I won't talk about all these verses, but I want us just to read this passage. And I think this is a good way to, to close on this. It says this, and this is in the outline if you're looking for where is this passage. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, God says the way to understand what love is is not to look at you or your experiences or even what you think love is. You have to look at the sacrificial love of Christ. What you call love probably isn't even worthy of the name. Look at this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he goes on and says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I think so many Christians are trying to rely on their love for God rather than knowing and relying on the love God has for them. And There's probably some Christians, I think, that are trying to rely on their love for God, but they don't really know or on his love for them, but they don't know anything about it. When I went off to college, I had the vaguest idea of what it meant that Jesus died on a cross. I knew that that was important, but I didn't know why and I didn't know anything about it. And I was trying to hold on to my faith by sheer willpower. But I didn't know anything about it. How could I rely on something I didn't know the first thing about? Here we're told that we need to know and rely on the love God has for us. And he goes on. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So John is saying here that the way God deals with our fear is to drive it out by his perfect love. But it's not just a feeling. Remember he said we know And rely on this love. Which means the key to having fear driven out is to go deeper into the knowing and relying on the love that God has for us. And then he makes a particular link to punishment. He says fear has to do with punishment. But that's not an appropriate place for a Christian to live. Why? Because Jesus took the punishment that mankind deserved on a cross. It said in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone." Who hangs on a tree? It says that in Deuteronomy. In Isaiah 53, it talks about how there would be one who would come who would be stricken. And yet the fascinating thing that Isaiah says is, yes, he is stricken, but why? And it says there, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The heart of the gospel is that punishment that we deserved would be given to another It's there foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrifices, but it comes to its manifestation and its fullness in Jesus on the cross. And therefore, what we understand as Christians about what Jesus did is that he drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. And that drives out fear. In other words... When you are tempted to be overwhelmed by fear and tempted to take control, you need to take that gospel and the truth that Jesus lived and died in my place. What more do I have to be afraid of? And all I can tell you is I was at a place of such fear for so many years. I got to a point where I decided I'd actually you know, played the, uh, football at the Super Bowl party like we do with the college group. I've been doing that years ago. We've been doing it for many, many years. And this one year, I ended up getting... Gouged, uh, gouged my own eye with my finger and scratched my cornea and it made me basically lay in my room for a week and just kind of ponder my life and where I was at and I, I knew this cute nurse who came over and brought me my medicine her name was Wendy and Morgan and I kept thinking about man you know there's all these girls I know but I it would be unbelievable it would be so awesome if she'd actually go out with me but I don't know she probably wouldn't and I had all my reasons why Anyway, it took me another couple months, honestly, because I kept, I was just stuck in this place of what if she says yes, what if she says no? Those are both frightening possibilities. Because if she says yes, like I've just jumped into something that I don't know where it's leading. But it's leading to places where I'm not going to be in control. Places, scary places, right, where I could really get my heart broken. Or what if she says no? Well, then I'm going to get my heart broken right away. So it's like pain now or pain later. And I felt like God finally said, you know what, Kevin? Like perfect love drives out fear. And I'm big enough for what if. Are you able to trust me? Are you able to look at the cross and say, you know, I guess I can trust this guy that lived and died in my place. I mean, it's not just words. Like he actually did that. Maybe, maybe I could take this step forward. And I had, to, I had to preach that gospel to myself over and over and over again. But all I can tell you is, he is big enough for what if. He's big enough to drive out your fear. And honestly, whenever you try to deal with your fear yourself, by looking to idols, control, or whatever, it actually makes you more afraid and more vulnerable. So why not just (laughs) repent, turn from all of that and cast your heart on Jesus and let him drive out your fear and then let him take you to where he wants to take you. I don't know where it is. It may be being single for 33 years, like my story. Or it may be you need to ask somebody out or be open to that. I don't know. And I'm not going to make a rule because the Bible doesn't make a rule. And I don't read in my Bible what you need to do. But I do know that God doesn't want you to be driven by fear.